This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is part six of the On Air Memoir Writing Workshop and I'm Stephanie Fruin. In 2019, I gathered around a very small table various groups of strangers who wanted to start writing their memoirs, or at least writing some of their personal stories for their families to one day read. They were generous enough to allow me to record them reading their stories and to share them on air with listeners like you. Given the current situation of COVID-19, I can't see me sitting around a table with workshop attendees for quite some time, so I thought I would conduct my workshop over the airways. The world might be in lockdown, but our stories are not. For many, the idea of writing a memoir seems arrogant, and the response I mostly get from people when I ask them if they'd consider writing down their life stories is, who would be interested in reading about my life? I've done nothing interesting, nothing important. I'm no celebrity or sports hero. But I think they're wrong. I believe every life is interesting, and committing that life to paper or some digital format to be forever remembered has a part to play in conserving our history for generations to come. Now more than ever, recording our history is incredibly important. We must make available for our children and their children information about our lives, lifestyles, health and habits, for who knows what clues lie in these stories as to what is to come in the future. So over this strange and uncertain COVID-19 time, I've been taking you through the steps to get you writing your memoir. In part one of the workshop, I got you to write about your name, as I believe that this is one of the most defining parts of you, and often something that we just don't think about. In part two, we looked at turning points of life, those moments where a decision, situation or an occurrence changed your life, and on looking back at it, you can see how defining that moment was in setting the stage for your future. Part three, we discussed the importance of language and the style of writing and in particular looked at letter writing and how having one person as a recipient of your story can affect the language you use and also how we change the style of our writing depending on the situation. In part four, I got you to write about your first car, often a major moment for people, and last time in part five, we discussed the mood and tone of writing and I got you to think about a prized possession to write about. This time, in part six, I want you to examine what is going on in time at the moment. Notice how COVID-19 has affected not only you on a personal level, but also the world globally, and how would you describe it to people in years to come? This is one of these global events that as we get older and younger generations don't remember or have no idea of what living under COVID-19 conditions was like, that they will want us to tell them a story, tell them about COVID-19. It will be one of those I remember when moments. Often these are meant with groans from people who really think they don't care about what's happened in the past, but also they can provide real insights into lifestyles and attitudes and what was going on in the world at the time. Coming up are examples of I remember when stories. Have a listen to those and then write your own. Maybe you want to write about COVID-19, or maybe you'll be inspired to look back at some of those other big moments that have defined our societies and lives. Remember, your story shouldn't be too long, no more than 750 to 1,000 words. I mean, it can be longer than that, but really just try to avoid the waffle. Once you've written your story, read it out loud. That's the best way to pick up mistakes and edit it. 
There may be some of you, when you're done, you'd like to send it to me to have a read to offer you some feedback. Then by all means, email it to me at mytaletotalnz at gmail.com. I will be starting workshops again in the future, so if you'd like to be on my database to hear about these, please do get in touch. Enjoy listening to the samples of writing coming up, written and read by attendees of my workshops, and happy writing. My name is Karen, and this is my tale to tell. I remember when the world held its breath, waiting to see if survivors of the nuclear-powered Russian submarine, the Kursk, would be rescued alive. Two explosions on board caused the submarine to sink on the 12th of August 2000 during the first major Russian naval exercise in more than 10 years. Nearby ships registered the explosions. The second larger one registered 4.2 on the Richter scale and was felt as far away as Alaska. The inept Russian Navy did not even realise the submarine had sunk and consequently it was more than six hours before they initiated a search and 11 hours before they declared an emergency. Due to the sub's rescue boy having been intentionally disabled, it was more than 16 hours before the sub was even located in the Barents Sea. Governments from other countries offered their help, but the Russian government, which included the newly elected Vladimir Putin, refused the outside help, saying they had things under control. Putin even continued his holiday at a seaside resort, and it was only on the fifth day that he authorised the Russian Navy to accept help from the British and Norwegians. In the meantime, the government misled and manipulated both the public and the news media, and their slow response was later criticised. Families of the men on board became angry and volatile during a meeting with Putin, and leaked coverage of this meeting showed footage of a mother of one of the men on board being forcibly sedated and then removed from the meeting. The two explosions triggered the detonation of half a dozen torpedo warheads and killed everybody forward of the fifth compartment, which contained the nuclear reactor, which had shut down safely. It was later found that 23 sailors from compartments 6 through to 9 took shelter in the small ninth compartment. A full seven days after the sub sunk, Norwegian divers opened a hatch in the ninth compartment to find it flooded with no survivors. The survivors had attempted to replace an oxygen cartridge to buy them more time, but it had accidentally fallen into oily seawater that had leaked into the sub and exploded, causing a fire which used up all remaining oxygen and suffocated them all. The bodies of 115 sailors were recovered the following year when the sub was brought to the surface. A report concluded that the Russian Navy had been completely unprepared for and was unable to respond to the disaster in a timely manner due to stunning breaches of discipline, shoddy obsolete and poorly maintained equipment and negligence, incompetence and mismanagement. 71 children were left fatherless due to the sinking of the Kursk. Come away with me My name is Donna and this is my tale to tell. You'll laugh at this. Alan turned up at Grant and Judith's new house, which is pretty awesome actually, seeing as they've just bought it. But as per usual, Alan needed to be the centre of attention and whipped out his computer. Then he began giving instructions about the phone line and the phone jack location. We were all busy bustling around letting him direct us, even though we weren't really sure why. So I asked, what's this for? I'm going to show you how to surf the net. Oh, I replied, what's that? Alan's face lit up and began reeling off information about the Pentagon, communication systems, it's a new movement taking over the world and something about an information highway. Sounded interesting. 
So I joined in with finding the phone jack and assisted him in finding a dongle to the laptop. I don't really know what a dongle is, but it's a type of adapter to some sort of thing that uses the phone line to pass pockets of information on the information highway, according to Alan. Once Alan had got everything set up, he dialed in. Honestly, it was a bit of a letdown. Actually, we all just stood around and listened to these squeaks and squeals through the dial tone of the phone and waited. The entire reason we were doing this was so that we would be able to access information from the Pentagon. But what I saw was a black screen with a small white flashy line in the top left corner. And according to Alan, we were surfing the net. I'm not really sure if I understand it, as I didn't find out anything other than being a, that I'm a Luddite. That's what Alan called me. So I asked Dad what that was, and he said it was a term about workers who were worried about losing their jobs in woolen mills during the 1800s. That's not it, said Alan. It's because she hasn't got a clue about how important this is. It's going to change the world. I'm not sure if it will. It made no sense to me, like I said, but I'm still not sure if I'm a Luddite either. Who do I listen to, Alan or Dad? They've always been so competitive about things and it's always like being in university challenge when they're in a room together. Either way, I'm not sure if, if surfing the web's for me. It all seems a bit dry and droll. My name is Karen and this is my tale to tell. Dear William, I know how much you enjoy going to the beach, so I want to tell you about the Boxing Day tsunami which happened in 2004, the year you were born. You were too young to remember that on the 26th of December a huge earthquake in the Indian Ocean off the western coast of Sumatra caused a massive tsunami which is the Japanese word for long high sea wave. When this huge wave is forming water can be sucked out to sea from the shore leaving a vast amount of beach exposed. This is one of the signs that a tsunami is on its way and many people were caught out on Boxing Day as they stood watching the seawater recede. Instead of running for the safety of higher ground to escape the huge wave that was forming and which would soon crash back to shore and beyond, carrying debris which would kill them, they watched, fascinated, as fish flapped about on the beach. Almost 230,000 people lost their lives that day in Banda Aceh, Thailand and India as buildings, cars, trees and other debris crashed onto coastlines at 500 miles per hour, killing people instantly and leaving thousands homeless. Sri Lanka suffered some of the worst devastation when 30,000 people were swept away by waves and hundreds of thousands lost their homes. Many people don't know the warning signs of a tsunami and many places didn't have working tsunami warning systems in place so they had no hope of surviving. There were a few stories of survival though. One little boy saved many people as he'd been taught that receding water at the beach is a sign of an impending tsunami and he was able to urge the people nearby to flee and they were saved. Ever since the Boxing Day tsunami, whenever I am at the beach, I find myself watching for signs of the sea receding. It's because you are precious to me, William, that I am writing to tell you about this terrible event, so that when you go to the beach, you are aware of the tsunami warning signs. Come away with me in the night. Come away with me. I am Heather, and this is my tale to tell. When a famous person dies. Many famous people have died in my long life, and I never recall when it was. They say you know exactly where you were when Jack Kennedy died or Marilyn Monroe, but no, not for me. I do not recall. 
I'm not even sure I recall my chosen person, Princess Diana. I think my daughter, Eleanor, and I were in the Northland's pack-and-save supermarket, and the cashier said, Do you know what has just happened? Princess Diana has been killed. She died in a car crash, 31st of August, 1997. We were dumbfounded. Neither of us were fans of Princess Diana because we thought she was a phony, but we were nonetheless shocked. Like so many other privileged people hogging the limelight while playing Greta Garbo and insisting they only want to be left alone, I thought she would go on forever spreading her poor me stories. I thoroughly endorsed Diana for her putting motherhood first and breaking the stiff English tradition of parents playing a hands-off role. I was thrilled she took her baby on the overseas trip. I was rather pleased the way she eclipsed Charles in the public imagination and noted this, his sour response to this. But I think Diana was more knowingly manipulative than most seem to think. I don't blame her for her disgust with Charles' infidelity, but I do not believe she wasn't aware of what she was getting into. She was an aristocrat herself, and that entire lot behaved no better than their foxhounds when it comes to morals. I do not believe that Harry is Charles' son. James Hewitt had been one of Diana's lovers. And I am doubtful that Queen Victoria had a right to the English throne because her German mother was having an affair with a European Jew at the time, which made his paternity more probable than Britain's royal, the Duke of Kent. I was fascinated with the outpouring of grief and the way the English reacted. Although I took Diana with a pinch of salt, I felt satisfaction at the Queen being forced to show some respect. Her death was treated by the public as if a goddess had died. What a miserable bunch that lot are. Her brother has had her casket placed in the middle of a lake on his estate to keep the public away. Bring on the revolution. The people want a new saint to pilgrimage to, and why should they be denied? Postscript. Having checked with Eleanor, my recall is absolutely correct of when and how we learned of Diana's death. My name is Steph and this is my tale to tell. Dear Judy Yeat, it seems strange to write to you about this, but I think, given how far removed we live from anywhere else in the world, that it is important to see how the world can come to your own door, or so it seems when you are your age. Recently, you sat a jazz dance exam, and beforehand you were really worried about it. Your nerves were getting the better of you, and you definitely seemed to feel that if you didn't succeed with the exam, the world might end. I told you the sun would still come up tomorrow, and the important thing to do is to just enjoy yourself. I remember when I was 10 years old, in 1982, and Argentina invaded a group of islands called the Falkland Islands. My father pulled out the world map and showed me where the islands were. To me, they looked really close to New Zealand, just across the ocean. We lived in Hokitika at the time, and being on the west coast of the South Island, I remember feeling particularly vulnerable. If we lived in Canterbury, we would be safe from marauding Argentinians that have to get across the mountains. It seemed to me they could invade us at any time. The Falkland Islands were a British territory. 
so was New Zealand. And I couldn't believe that another country could just invade one country without provocation. What if we were invaded? What if warships from China or Japan came and invaded us? In my mind, this was highly probable, and I got really worried about it. Your grandfather had been through basic training after World War II, and I remember there was discussion about if the war escalated, how the call-up would be done. The war lasted 10 weeks, and during that time, Britain had 255 military killed, Argentina 649. 775 British troops were wounded, and 115 were captured. Argentina had 1,657 wounded, with 11,313 captured. It's not hard to see who carried the heavier sword, so to speak. As an adult, I can see a couple of things differently here, and this is what I think is important for you to know. The amount of ocean between New Zealand and Argentina is vast, and the reason why Argentina invaded the Falklands was because the British stole it from Argentina 140 years previous, so the Argentinians had an axe to grind. Also, there was no way my father, your grandfather, was going off to war. He was much too old. 40. And Britain had an army great enough to fight their own battles. But I couldn't see that bigger picture at age 10, so I worried. Things always seem bigger and fiercer when you're growing up. But when you get to my age, you realise that there is nothing more important than knowing that the sun will always come up and that I will always love you. Mum. My name is Lynette. This is my tale to tell. I remember when. I remember when the American Apollo 11, which was the first crewed space mission to land on the moon on the 20th of July 1969. That year I was at Lincoln High and we all went to the school hall to listen to the radio commentary of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin taking the first steps on the moon's surface. Neil Armstrong said the words that were to become famous. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Apparently he was meant to say, ah man, but in his excitement he just said for man. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became household names after stepping from the Apollo Lunar Module Eagle on the mean surface. Unfortunately, Michael Collins, who stayed in the spacecraft, wasn't remembered quite as much. It was 50 years this year, 2019, since that day, and I am thinking other schools must have also done this, as my son's partner said her mother also did this. Perhaps if we hadn't all gone to the hall to listen to the live broadcast, it might not have stuck in my memory quite so much. It was a major event back in 1969 and caused great excitement amongst my friends and I. I was amazed that we could hear what was happening at that exact moment. Now 50 years on, although there have been many space missions, none of them have landed on the moon. Although not the first landing on the moon, this was the first crewed mission to, the, to land on the moon. The Soviet Union's Luna 2 unmanned craft landed on the moon 13th of September 1959, when I would have only been six years old, and I don't remember this. The Apollo 11 crew left behind an American flag, a patch honouring the fallen Apollo 1 crew of three who died when a fire erupted in their command module during pre-flight training. It was said this year that there doesn't seem to have been a lot of progress in the last 50 years with space travel, but perhaps as there has been 18 astronauts and cosmonaut fatalities during spaceflight and training for space missions that this could be a reason why. 
1968, seven crew died when the spacecraft Challenger was destroyed 73 seconds after liftoff at Cape Canaveral. And in 2003, seven crew were again killed when the Columbia spacecraft disintegrated during atmospheric re-entry. Currently, there are spacecraft from Japan, India, China and the USA in space, and there may be even more spacecraft out there. NASA has a manned crew in space, and watching this on television the other night, I was surprised to see that they were wearing everyday clothes of shorts and t-shirts, whereas in years gone past, they would have been wearing space suits. If this happened today, 2019, I guess everybody would be watching it on their laptop or phone, and I think perhaps because we all gathered together in the school hall, it made the event more memorable. Upon further investigation, I am wondering why we want to go to the moon, as it has no atmosphere and all the water on the surface is frozen. I didn't myself have any aspirations to go to the moon. Although I don't suffer from claustrophobia, the thought of being in that confined space for any length of time doesn't interest me. Now five decades after the moon landing, there are still people who think the whole thing never happened and that this was a hoax filmed in a warehouse in Hollywood. Four seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and My name is Stephanie and this is my tale to tell. I vividly remember when Lady Diana Spencer married Prince Charles on the 29th of July 1981. I was nine years old at the time and living in Hokitika, a small town on the west coast of the South Island with an average annual rainfall of 2.9 metres. You can imagine, aside from drying out your gumboots and oilskin coat, not a lot happened in Hokitika. So for me, the watching of a real-life prince marrying a common girl was just amazing. We had a colour television, not everyone did back then, and our neighbours who had a very small black and white TV came over late at night to join in the royal festivities with us. Well, I say neighbours, but really it was just the mother and the two daughters who came over. Men didn't watch a wedding, that was girls' stuff. I also remember we made popcorn and had other treats, probably in a bid to keep us awake and quiet while the wedding took place. It was going to happen close to midnight New Zealand time. Prior to the wedding, I remember being absolutely obsessed with anything to do with Lady Diana, what she wore, her hairstyles, and even considered early childhood as a career option, briefly, because that's what she had done. I also remember wondering what on earth she was doing marrying that odd-looking guy when she was so pretty and young. Sure, he was a prince, but couldn't she have found a better-looking one? So we're glued to the television set watching the build-up, the crazy East End couple, the pearly king and queen, wearing those suits and hats all glistening, and people who had camped outside St Paul's Cathedral to ensure they got a great viewing spot. The number of bystanders was just incredible. We saw the guests arrive, including Kiri Takanawa, who looked like a poof of rainbow colours, and we weren't too sure about that choice of dress, but we were incredibly proud that a New Zealander was going to sing. Being as small a country as we are, it really did feel like we were so close to Kiri. She didn't know us at all, but we knew her, and from that moment we were family, unbeknownst to her, of course. And then, of course, the magic really happened. In came Lady Diana in a carriage, her father beside her. 
From the minute the carriage appeared, we could see the dress was filling it up, a bit like excess soapy foam in a washing machine. And I remember Mum commenting on how that won't be doing it any good, it'll be very wrinkled, and it was. She stepped down from the carriage, and the commentary began from us all. What a poor choice of fabric. What a dreadful design. Doesn't look terrible. It's so wrinkled. How disappointing for her. It's a real fairy tale princess dress, isn't it? Big! The train goes on forever. The flower girls had to sort that out. And of course, to top it off, her poor father looked very unsteady on his feet and needed to have someone helping him. The writing was truly on the wall of this doomed marriage, and that was only at the start of the ceremony. When I look back at video clips of this wedding, you can actually watch the whole thing if you want. It's so interesting to notice Prince Charles's body language just before the exchanging of vows. He has a distinct, oh shit, what am I doing, look about him. And when the minister says that this is all very serious business in the eyes of God, he gives his nose a scratch and wipes around his eyes. Another, oh my God, I'm doomed to hell moment. Of course, now we all know about his ongoing love affair at the time with Camilla Parker Bowles, so no wonder he was sweating, possibly expecting her to pipe up during the part when people couldn't object to the wedding. But Diana kind of got her own back when she stuffed up the order of Charles's name. Instead of, I take you, Charles, Philip, Arthur, George, he became Philip Charles, Arthur, George. The poor girl. The nerves and the look of terror on her face is so tangible it's ghastly. But of course, at the time, and through the eyes of a nine-year-old, all I saw was a princess being made in a wrinkled dress. And today, of course, they would probably never even get married. She'd be considered far too young. It just wouldn't happen. My name is Karen, and this is my tale to tell. I remember when Diana, Princess of Wales, died along with her lover Dodi Al-Fayed in a car accident on 31st of August 1997. They crashed in a road tunnel in Paris while fleeing from the paparazzi. We had heard a radio news report a little earlier that day which said she'd been injured in a car accident. It was one of those events when you remember exactly where you were when you heard about it. I distinctly remember we were driving down Colombo Street and were stopped at the Bailey Ave traffic lights when the four o'clock news on the car radio reported that Diana had passed away from the injuries she had sustained in the crash. It was a shock. Injured is one thing, but Diana, dead. We were almost home and I felt quite upset. Diana had been in the media spotlight almost constantly for so long, hounded by the press. Details of her personal life splashed on so many magazine covers for years now that I felt as though I almost knew her personally. There was a lot of public anger towards the paparazzi. Many people felt the accident wouldn't have happened had she not been constantly pursued so relentlessly. There was ill feeling felt towards the Queen in the days to follow for her perceived lack of compassion in not issuing a public statement about Diana's passing. It seemed quite heartless of her not to publicly acknowledge Diana's untimely death, considering she was the mother of two of the Queen's grandsons, one of them a likely future king. Diana's funeral was televised a week later and we had some friends over to watch it at our place. It was particularly hard watching Princes William and Harry walking behind their mother's coffin, looking so stoic but feeling so lost and utterly heartbroken. There was hardly a dry eye in our living room as the camera zoomed in on her coffin, laden with white flowers and a card from Prince Harry which said simply, Mummy. Everyone felt so sorry for her two young sons, aged only 12 and 15, who would now have to grow up without their mother, who had clearly adored them. 
Diana considered herself the people's princess and on her death at just 36 years old, the people, including myself, really were very sad. My Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories.